Welcome to Money for the Rest of the Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is a vacation special. We just celebrated Independence Day here in the U.S., so I spent time with friends and family, didn't do record or prepare a regular episode. Instead, I want to share with you a conversation I recently had with Roger Whitney. He is, as he says, affectionately known as the retirement answer man. I met Roger a few years ago, I think at the financial, uh, FinCon, it's a financial media conference. I've, I hung out with him at Podcast Movement. Really, really good guy. And we think very similarly in that you can't predict the future. So you have to be nimble and agile in terms of how you both prepare, save, and live and invest in retirement. He says he comes to work every day because he wants to solve the biggest problem in wealth management and retirement planning. And what's that problem? Everyone is guessing. People don't know what to invest in or how much they need to save. Most people don't even know that it's possible to enjoy life today and still prepare for a terrific retirement. So he's a, he's a registered investment advisor, which is his primary occupation, but he also gives plenty of free education, including the Retirement Answer Man podcast. I like the, the final sentence in his, his bio. He writes, life is a journey. You should balance it. Enjoy it rather than feel like you're marching up a mountain. So in the conversation, we talk about financial experience, the difference between investing, speculating, and gambling, a lot of discussion on asset allocation, investment policy, and on on rules for adjusting your asset allocation. We talk about some of the differences between investing for institutions and individuals as they invest, particularly in terms of how we define risk. Talk about active versus passive management, how to to select or should you select an active manager, a little bit on luck versus skill and behavioral finance. So I hope you enjoy the conversation I have with Roger. You can get more information about him at rogerwhitney.com. That's W-H-I-T-N-E-Y. So rogerwhitney.com, the retirement answer man. David, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Good. This is a good time to have you on the show. One, because in my in practice, I'm uh, re, I don't want to say building, because I'm just tweaking my due diligence process for managing client assets. Uh, and you've spent decades advising institutions and universities on asset allocation policy. Uh, so I think this is a great time to have you on. And plus, you're a pretty cool guy. Well, thanks. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> not that old. I didn't advise for decades. I advised for about 15 years and then retired. It just so, really felt like decades. It sounds good, though. Well, you know, what's interesting, because I, I ran into this as, because we would have investment managers come and present to these college investment committees. And it was sort of, there's always a fine line, because sometimes a manager would come and say, well, I've had 35 years of experience managing money. And the first question that would come to an investment committee member's mind is, when are you going to retire and what's your succession plan? So it's <laughs> sort of point. like a sweet spot. You can't have too much experience because then people think you, you're, you're not going to stick around, but you have too little, then it's like, well, you haven't, you haven't been through the market cycles. So. Exactly. And I don't know what the right number is, so. but <laughs> well, decades sounds like close to retired. <laughs> but then again, I guess I am. So. Yeah, you are, right? Sort of, kind of. 
Right. Uh, so you actually, you said something that I'll just touch on real quick about having presentations from investment managers. Because like you, I get, I sit in, whether it's private equity presentations for private real estate or businesses or investment managers, you go into a room, they give you this big deck, and then they make the case of why the strategy works. And I've sat through probably thousands of them, and you have as well. And they all sound great when you're listening to them, don't they? They all make Well, they total- do. Yeah. They do. And in the specific context that I was talking about, like we did that as our firm, and we met with managers all the time and went to their shops and kicked the tires, et cetera. But I was talking about a specific setting where you might bring in three or, or usually three is the best. And then like you have a committee that's never met this manager. So they're blind. So this first time they've seen them, they, we've sent them some, some preview materials. And so, yeah, they're, and they have nothing to base it on. And it, it's amazing that the, the, how this is set up is big endowments will often make a decision to hire somebody based on their presentation skills. Literally, I've seen, I've seen managers lose because they couldn't present and you see managers win because they could present well. Yeah, not it, that they're skilled. Yeah, yeah, not that they're necessarily the most skilled or right. uh, have the you know the best track record or whatever whatever the matrix is. But what I want to talk about today with you because I think this is a central problem or issue that everybody faces, not just you know individuals that listen to the show, but even professionals of the difference between investing to work towards something you actually care about in life, speculating, which a lot of people mask as investing and being proactive, and then just simply gambling. Because those are very three different things, and I think we get those mixed up a lot when we're making investment decisions. So what's your perspective on that? Well, I, I do. And the my definition, and I, I admit I got this from – and now I'm not going to remember the name of the professor, but I'll, I'll send you the link you can put in the show notes. This was a, a gentleman that put together an education piece. He was based in Australia. I think he was working for the Australian Financial Authority, specifically trying to counteract what was going on in the binary option market, which we don't have to get into, but that is definitely a form of gambling. And, and I loved his definition because he said investing – is when there is a positive expected return. And and that is typically what we would have for traditional investments. So statistically, the expected return is positive. And and usually those are something that has some cash flow. So it could be stocks, it could be bonds, it could be real estate, where the the benefit of having cash flow is you can value it. So here's the cash flow, you can discount it back. We think it's worth this. Is it fairly valued? Is it overvalued? Is it undervalued? So that's traditionally when we talk about investing. Speculating would be where there's some, some disagreement on whether the return, the expected return is positive or negative. And, and probably the best example I can think of is, is gold. You know, gold has no cash flow and there's some disagreement at any given time what it should be worth. Now, I, I think most investors should have investments and they should, can also, should also, for diversification standpoint, have some speculation in the portfolio, where there's some disagreement, because I think gold is a, is a great hedge, gold coins. But there is no cash flow, and there's some, some general disagreement on what it should be worth at any given time. Now, gambling is where there's an expected negative return, where you know you're going to lose money. And so why would people gamble? Well, if you, if, I don't know if you gamble, Roger, but 
people that go to Las Vegas, you know, they're, they're there. Yeah, they'd like to win, but they're there for the entertainment. And so gamblers, a gamble is really, it's the entertainment value, be it the lottery or, or something along those lines. And where it's, where one has to be very cautious is where a gamble is like Las Vegas, pretty straightforward, right? Everybody knows it's a gamble. You know that the house is going to win. Otherwise, Las Vegas wouldn't exist. So you're there for the entertainment. But if there's an investment or something that is supposedly in quotes an investment, but it's really a gamble, then and that's where you need to be wary. And so that's why, as you mentioned, due diligence is important. Understand, you know, what are the dynamics of a particular security or investment to see, you know, where does it fall? Is it really an investment? Does it have an expected positive return? Is it a speculation where there's some some disagreement on what the return should be, positive or negative? Or is it really have an expected negative return, in which case it's gambling? Well, let's go back to that investing definition because I want to get some clarification. So let's take, is it, let's take, does it have to have positive cash flow in the form of, say, dividends? So, or is it from a reasonable reasonable historical expectation of how the asset class might act? Because I think of, say, you know, many large quality companies don't pay dividends. So from the definition you gave me, those would be always be speculations, not investing. So how does that? Well, they have they have earnings, hopefully, eventually, okay, so and they have cash flow. They have the promise okay. of future cash flow come that you can say, all right, I know that it doesn't pay a dividend now, but I can see the earnings growth. I can put a multiple in terms of a price to earnings ratio on that earnings and come up with a value okay, right? so it's based not just, on yes. future expectation. But there's something meaningful happening with the business or the the investment that, that, that yeah, you can reasonably statistically say it has an expected return. Okay. No, I mean, there's there's some disagreement. One, some say some people could say gold is an investment because it's always gone up over time. But at any given period, having if you've done any trading in in commodities, you know that they're highly volatile because there's some disagreement. You know, way more volatile than stocks from minute to minute, from day to day, because of that disagreement. And that's what makes some speculations. Yeah. And you could argue there's no inherent value that you can necessarily measure from a supply-demand balance sheet. They're not growing, right? Gold is gold. It's just a a bet against, you know, it doesn't have any intrinsic value other than maybe some marginal industrial value. But other than that, it's not really. Right. Right. So one of the fundamental questions or issues people grapple with when they're investing, in my mind, is this idea of having a sound investment allocation policy, but then feeling or looking at the, you know, the view from the ground, say interest rates right now, and saying, yeah, but, you know, the uh, this may be a sound investment policy, yeah, but look at where, whether it's interest rate environments, how far the markets run, all those types of things. So in your, in your experience, how much rope is reasonable to give yourself to lean to act on some of those valuation calls and leaning away from asset class and leaning towards other classes? Because you can give yourself a little bit of rope. Some people give themselves enough rope where they're in and out of different things altogether. 
Well, I mean, that it's a judgment call. And there's a couple of factors that influence that. That One being, how much money do you have? And, and I, in the education side I run, I run, you know, having spent so many years working with institutions, trading costs were never an issue or rebalancing costs. But for smaller clients, say, whatever, somebody's still some starting out, but even, let's say, $100,000, making adjustments based on expectations or what's going on with the market. I mean, they can, the, the cost of just the trading can have an impact. I think the other thing, though, is just the opportunity cost. And, you know, the way that I have invested over the years and the way that I teach investing is primarily buy and hold, long-term strategic allocation, but not a blind risk taker. And so where I do like to know what's going on. I don't want to be agnostic in terms of the market. I want to know if there's areas that are overvalued. And with the starting with the base that I can't predict the future. And so it's all risk management. It's, it's playing the probabilities, trying to figure out, all right, given the current situation, where is there the most risk? And is the potential harm from that risk justify making a change? But the reality is all, all investing is active. Even if you're dyed in the world, purely passive, unless your allocation matches the global market portfolio, which is basically the, the weights of, of, of all investments based on how large they are, right? if you make any deviation at all in terms of how much you have in U.S. versus international, then you're making some active decisions. Your decision when to rebalance is an active decision. And so I'd rather make those type of adjustments based on where we are in terms of, of the market cycle, where we are in terms of valuations, where ec the economic trends are. Because what I'm looking for is regime changes. So I don't – you lived through 2008, and, and I lived through 2008 managing money, and, and I saw the absolute terror that, that clients had. And, and we, we should have made better, more adjustments, right? And so I think, I think you can't predict the future, but the risks were there that advisors should have been adjusting their client portfolios. Yeah, and we were adjusting ours, reducing risk, should have reduced them more, but yeah, there I, should have been adjustments made. When I look back at that period, and do a self-evaluation in terms of how I navigated it with clients. I grade myself okay on per, uh, defending assets when things were were falling apart. Now, not getting totally out of the way. There was no major call that I was some hero or anything. <clears throat> it's that joke, you know. It's like, you know, if the market goes down twenty percent and you go and you go down ten percent, that's a great job, but it sure doesn't feel like it. Exactly um, <laughs> right, and that's what we did. Right, we didn't. <laughs> We didn't make money during that period. Yeah. But the hard but, part, and where I where I grade myself lower is, and this is always the hard part of any kind of timing, is getting back in to, you know, when things ultimately turn. Because I remember in March of 09, actually the bottom was my son's birthday in, in March 9th of 09, even as that big rally came from there, the messaging and literally the world still felt like it was falling apart a year or two after that, even though the markets were recovering. And that's part of the hard, hard thing of doing this. 
Well, it is. And that's where you have to in, you, you have to look at, you know, some of the survey data was improving from the economy and you, and you started markets go in trends. And so once we hit maximum fear, you started to see a reversal of that. And that was time to, to, to tiptoe back in. You know, if you reduce risk, not you don't you can't ever get the timing right. It's just not, not going to happen. Yeah. So you're just adjusting based on on risk. So, and, and you could be stepping back in in March, as we did, or in even June. But I mean, it, we were early, right? We were early by emerging markets. We were starting to step back into emerging markets in December. And so it um, it's hard. It really is hard. So he, but I, I go ahead. Uh, here, here's a question on because um, I think this is really important that you know that a lot of advisors I think miss, and that is and not, that is that we're not dealing with institutional money. The type of the type of process that is generally used with a, in by financial advisors is similar to the, you know, rudimentary, but similar to the process you used in advising institutions, right? It's that right. prudent investment process, setting asset allocation, pro, you know, policy and rebalancing and everything else. The difference in my mind, and I'd be interested in your take on this, is that institutions don't die. Ultra high net worth investors have a multi-generational timeline Whereas normal people like you and I, we have a timeline that is much more compressed. And investing with that type of process where it assumes you don't die, it's not tied to the life goals that you actually care about. It's very different than an institutional ultra high net worth that has a hundred plus year time frame. How have you come to reconcile and make sure that those are tied together, whether it's for you or for how you talk to people? Well, in my case, like the institutional, it's how you define risk. And they define risk as is volatility because that's traditional finance. And, and so is this allocation better because it's less volatile for given its given level of return? And they define volatility as, you know, will the, the portfolio generate enough return above inflation and spending to last forever? For individuals, risk is primarily losing money and running out of money. I mean, that's and, and certainly have to accumulate it. But and an example. So somebody sent me a question the other day because I, I have some models on on my site. And my aggressive portfolio still has around 30 percent in fixed income. And in his question is, well, that's not very aggressive. Why aren't you 100 percent stocks? Well, not 100 percent stocks, because one. You know, we live in a very, very risky world that's becoming more interconnected, and there's you know, stocks can fall 60% or 70%, and that can completely undermine somebody's retirement. They can't afford to take that type uh, of risk. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't even use volatility anymore in terms of making an allocation. What I use is is maximum drawdown. What is the worst case scenario, knowing worst case can always be worse than that, but you know, based on history, you know, this allocation, how much could it lose over an 18-month period? 
And what's the reco- how long would it typically take to recover those losses? To me, that's a much better way to define risk for an individual versus an institution where it's just volatility. Because volatility you, is both upside and downside. I don't care if, if I we want upside volatility, right? If we're making more than expectations, <laughs> yeah, we that's all great. Like that. Yeah, we like that part of the equation. Right. But from an institution, that would that would also be considered bad because it deviated from expectations. Yeah, which is which is something that a lot of us don't get in that we, you know when we a lot of people when they hire an active manager, whether it's a mutual fund or uh individual individually managed account, the assumption is that their job in the investor's mind in the retail world especially is they're there to make me money. And in reality, and you, you, you correct me if I'm wrong, by mandate, that's not their that's not their mandate. Their mandate is to hopefully beat in whatever matrix they decide the index that they are investing in, whether it's small cap growth or large cap growth or international. And generally, they're fairly tied to that index, and they're all in because it's a relative game for them, not an absolute game like a lot of investors think. Right, which is completely unless unless somebody's a hedge fund. Right. Yes, they're playing a relative game, and and that. Well, and, and I, <laughs> as working with investment committees over the years, and I would tell them all the time, the only way a manager, an active manager, can outperform a benchmark is by being different from that benchmark, which means taking very specific bets that generate tracking error differ from the benchmark, which means periods of underperformance, because that's just how it works. You're going to have to suffer through. You know, a top quartile manager will underperform their benchmark 30 to 40 percent of the time over a three to five year period consistently. And that's just how it, it, it works. And the problem is, as investors, we don't have the patience to wait out underperformance because, again, if the selection was made based on a book and a presentation, how do we know if the first three years they don't do a well do do so well relative to their benchmark? Let's say you know they're trailing by one and a half percent. Is that because they're not skilled, or is it because their style is out of favor, or or something else? Something changed, and so which is why most investors are better served just not doing the active management game unless they truly understand the manager. Or there's an area of the market that isn't effectively replicated with index funds. Yeah, and then if you, in my mind, if you're going to use an active manager, then you use one that is not tied to a specific index, so they can actually manage. So they're not. Well, well right, right. But the, but still, the bar is, and it goes back to that whole, you know, how do you identify luck versus skill? It's not really as easy as you think. Not at all. And, and, and I've, I've met thousands of managers and, and I ran a research group that that's what we did, tried to find the most skilled managers. And you look at my portfolio now, it's primarily passive. Yeah. You know, I have a few active where I think they can add value. And I'm comfortable. And it, an example is, is high momentum, small cap, micro cap growth, right? Not a great ETF available in that asset class. So I'll use an active manager because it's somebody I know well, and, and, and that's fine. But yeah, it, it is very, very difficult to do. And it's very, very difficult to keep clients on board. So part of it's just the frustration, you know, as an advisor, great, maybe I can pick them. But I, if my client is my client going to stick around 
while they go through those periods of un- in- inevitable periods of underperformance. Yeah, and Jeremy Grantham of GMO is a great example of this. Who is a you know, I don't know if you're familiar with their story. Oh, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's one of my favorite uh, investors. Yeah. I mean, you're gonna, hopefully you're going to share his quote. I love his quote. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what quote you're referring to. So let me, I'll tell a quick story and then you can use the quote. But right. y- you remember they were strict value investors in have been forever, GMO, which is out of Boston, I believe. And during the tech boom, they would not deviate when a lot of value managers were creeping over to the growth side to keep clients. And they I forget what they lost, but it was like over 50% of the assets they managed because clients were leaving them because they were sticking to their strategy, basically. Uh, so mm-hmm. go with the quote, because I, I want to hear it. Well, and, and from, you know, from that experience, he says, ultimately, we, we were vindicated and 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 we will outperform it just not my, it might not be with the same set of clients that we started with because <laughs> exactly. they left and then and i saw that i mean it, it just that was that was a an amazing time i remember going up to visit with the oakmark family because the family of mutual funds the the oakmark fund and which you might be familiar with and meeting with the, the head manager robert sanborn because he was going through the exact same thing he was losing assets and he was sticking to his value discipline and we were going to go up because we had a lot of money in that fund as well as separate accounts with with Oakmark. We met him on a Friday. He pounded the table. He said, yeah, I'm in. I'm staying with my sticking with my discipline. And they fired him on Monday. And we took all our money out of that particular institution because they didn't have the fortitude to stick with their investment process and style. Not that you can't change over time, but the time to be making changes is not when PEs of stocks are at 45 or higher. Yeah. So it goes to even if you find the amazing manager and you happen to be right, or even the right, you know, the asset classes, you have to, if you don't have that long-term perspective, uh, you're not going to get the benefit of it because there are times when they're just not going to be doing right well. And and, you know, we talk about, wow, if I would have invested in Amazon 10 years ago, whatever the number, you know, I don't know if it was around 10 years ago, but uh, nobody ever sticks around for that whole ride. No. Because there are... Because you don't, you, don't, you don't have any insight what the future is going to be. Is this the year that Amazon falls apart, right? Because people want to take profits. We, we have, you know, psychological, behavioral aspect is we want to lock in gains because then we can pat ourselves on the back to to because we're great investors whereas we don't want to lock in and sell losses because there's always a chance it'll come back and so generally we hold on to our losses and sell our gains when we should be actually be doing the opposite and letting our gains run and and sell and cut our losses when we don't know why if we don't have a justification to continue to hold a particular investment we don't understand what's going on then we should not be in it we shouldn't continue to to hold on to an investment because we think it might come back and we would feel really bad if we actually sold and recognized the losses. I feel like we could talk about a lot of different things in this area all day and it it's just so interesting. I want to make sure I'm respectful for your for your time and we bring it back. So if you had one or two fundamental tenets that would help someone be an investor rather than a speculator or a gamble, what would those be? Well, I, I think one, focus on portfolios. So don't don't 
spend so much time isolating on specific investments. The idea is to, to build out a portfolio uh, of diversified return drivers. So different things drive different returns. So what drives real estate is different than what drives bonds, which, which different than stocks. And it isn't so much the, the percentage, right? I mean, it does... As institutional, it's like, well, should we put 15.5% in this asset allocation or particular asset class or 17? It doesn't matter. The, the question is just, just get it diversified, understand and have some true investments based on our definitions, but you can have some speculations and, and focus on building out a diversified portfolio that way. And don't get caught in the weed. Is this active manager better than this one? And be, be very wary in terms of uh, things that is this truly gambling when and a, a great example of gambling well i can give you some examples right for most of us because we don't have any type of informational edge commodities trying to play specific commodities is gambling because generally speaking if we don't have any type of insight in fact i talked to a trader that traded like professional like hedge fund trader in in commodities and basically, to be successful in trading commodities, you need order flow. You need access to see you know, what is the supply and demand situation for people playing, placing orders. If you don't have that, that's gambling because the expected return is, is going to be negative. Or currency, oftentimes, for most of us, is, is gambling. For some, it is probably speculation because they have enough insight to what's going on. So when we get back to our definition, it often depends on what we know. For many of them, for what professionals might be speculation, for, for the common person is gambling because people can take advantage of us. People that have some type of informational insight could take advantage of us, and so we have an expected negative return, and that's gambling. And that, and that just be wary. Yeah, and that informational edge could have nothing to do with the actual supply-demand or value of the of the asset, it could be just simply that order flow and you know the intern the mechanisms of what's going on. So, well, right, exactly. You have fantastic resources on your site, moneyfortherestofus.com. I'll share links to those. David, enjoy always enjoy talking to you. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. Yeah, we'll have to do it again. Thanks. So that's my conversation with Roger Whitney. Again, you can get more information on him at Roger Whitney. Dot com. And everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only if not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.